0: With that prayer, speak, O Lord, we turn to God's word, and we have a lengthy passage in front of us, the end of Genesis 46, straight through the end of Genesis 47. Let me read that, Genesis 46, and we begin in verse 28. Now, Jacob sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to get directions to Goshen. When they arrived in the region of Goshen, Joseph had his chariot made ready, and went to Goshen to meet his father Israel. As soon as Joseph appeared before him, he threw his arms around his father and wept for a long time. Israel said to Joseph, Now I am ready to die, since I have seen for myself that you are still alive. Then Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and speak to Pharaoh, and will say to him, My brothers in my father's household, who are living in the land of Canaan, have come to me. The men are shepherds. They tend livestock. And they have brought along their flocks and herds and everything they own.'" When Pharaoh calls you in and asks, what is your occupation? You should answer, your servants have tended livestock from our boyhood on, just as our fathers did. Then you will be allowed to settle in the region of Goshen, for all shepherds are detestable to the Egyptians. Joseph went and told Pharaoh, my father and brothers with their flocks and herds and everything they own have come from the land of Canaan and are now in in Goshen. He chose five of his brothers and presented them before Pharaoh. Pharaoh asked the brothers, What is your occupation? Your servants are shepherds, they replied to Pharaoh, just as our fathers were. They also said to him, we have come to live here for a while because the famine is severe in Canaan and your servants' flocks have no pasture. So now please let your servants settle in Goshen. Pharaoh said to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you and the land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best part of the land. Let them live in Goshen. And if you know of any among them with special ability, put them in charge of my own livestock." Then Joseph brought his father Jacob in and presented him before Pharaoh. After Jacob blessed Pharaoh, Pharaoh asked him, "'How old are you?' And Jacob said to Pharaoh, "'The years of my pilgrimage are 130. My years have been few and difficult. They do not equal the years of the pilgrimage of my fathers.' Then Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from his presence. So Joseph settled his father and his brothers in Egypt and gave them property in the best part of the land, the district of Ramesses, as Pharaoh directed. Joseph also provided his father and his brothers and all his father's household with food according to the number of their children. There was no food, however, in the whole region because the famine was severe. Both Egypt and Canaan wasted away because of the famine. Joseph collected all the money that was to be found in Egypt and Canaan in payment for the grain they were buying, and he brought it to Pharaoh's palace. When the money of the people of Egypt and Canaan were gone, all Egypt came to Joseph and said, give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? Our money is all gone. Then bring your livestock, said Joseph. I will sell you food in exchange for your livestock, since your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and he gave them food in exchange for their horses, their sheep and goats, their cattle and donkeys. And he brought them through that year with food in exchange for all their livestock. When that year was over, they came to him the following year and said, we cannot hide from our Lord the fact that since our money is gone and our livestock belongs to you, there is nothing left for our Lord except our bodies and our land. Why should we perish before your eyes? We and our land as well. Buy us and our land in exchange for food and and we with our land will be in bondage to Pharaoh. Give us seed so that we may live and not die and that the land may not become desolate. So Joseph bought all the land in Egypt for Pharaoh. The Egyptians, one and all, sold their fields, because the famine was too severe for them. The land became Pharaoh's, and Joseph reduced the people to servitude from one end of Egypt to the other. However, he did not buy the land of the priests, because they received a regular allotment from Pharaoh and had food enough from the allotment Pharaoh gave them. This is why they did not sell their land. Joseph said to the people, now that I have bought you and your land today for Pharaoh, here is seed for you so you can plant the ground. But when the crop comes in, give a fifth of it to Pharaoh. The other four-fifths you may keep as seed for the fields and as food for yourselves and your households and your children. You have saved our lives, they said. May we find favor in the eyes of our Lord. We will be in bondage to Pharaoh. Verse 26. So Joseph established it as a law concerning land in Egypt, still enforced today, that a fifth of the produce belongs to Pharaoh. It was only the land of the priests that did not become Pharaoh's. Now the Israelites settled in Egypt, in the region of Goshen. They acquired property there and were fruitful and increased greatly in number. Jacob lived in Egypt 17 years, and the years of his life were 147. When the time drew near for Israel to die, he called for his son Joseph and said to him, If I have found favor in your eyes, put your hand under my thigh, and promise that you will show me kindness and faithfulness. Do not bury me in Egypt. But when I rest with my fathers, carry me out of Egypt and bury me where they are buried. I will do as you say, he said. Swear to me, he said. Then Joseph swore to him, and Israel worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. This is God's word. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, as we heard the offertory song, Speak, O Lord, that is our prayer as we come to your word. Would you speak to us? would you give us the ears to hear and the hearts to receive, to recognize your voice, to receive it and respond. For this we pray in Jesus' name, amen. I want to begin this morning talking about expectations. How much of the experience of our lives is determined by our expectations? For example, consider a standard hotel room. One couple checks in and is significantly disappointed. Another couple checks into that same room and loves it. Same conditions, completely different response. Why? Well, the first couple is on their honeymoon, and they are expecting the honeymoon suite, and so they're disappointed by this room that they check into. The second couple is returning from a mission trip in a very poor area of the world and have a completely different set of expectations, and they are grateful for a clean, comfortable room. You see, our expectations oftentimes determine our experience of life. How often have we had experiences that were worse than expected? Maybe you have had this experience where you book a place to stay on Airbnb because the pictures look wonderful and amazing. And then you check in and you see the place and it doesn't quite match up. Reality doesn't quite match up to the pictures and you're disappointed. On the other hand, we have experiences that are better than expected. And I remember this moment uh, not too long after we moved to New Jersey. We planned a Sunday afternoon in the city. We were gonna walk the High Line and then we were gonna to go to the Sunday evening service at Redeemer Presbyterian Church and then have dinner. And everything was perfect. It was a beautiful day. We found a parking lot, a parking spot right near the, the High Line. It was not crowded. And then after walking part of the High Line, we drove to the Upper West Side and found a spot on the same block as Redeemer. And we're in in, in the sanctuary early. And then found out that Tim Keller was preaching that day. Big bonus. (laughs) And then uh, dinner went off as planned. And we came home. And I just said to myself, that was just the perfect day. Like, everything was just perfect. Everything happened just as we had planned. You've had moments like that. We've all had experiences that that, that were worse than we expected and better than we expected. Now, at a larger level, how would you rate your your life so far? How would you rate how your life is going? Is Is it better than expected? Is it worse than expected? Maybe it's a bit of both. My friends, the good news of the life of Joseph is that it is a story of indestructible hope in the midst of the ups and downs, the twists and turns, the brokenness, and the threats. This is a story that ends with hope. For Joseph and his brothers, it ends better than they expect. And we are, in this series, learning to live into this story of indestructible hope, which it means we're we're learning to look at our lives through the lens of this story. We're approaching the end of it. We've got a few more weeks left, and Joseph and his his brothers experience a blessing that exceeds expectation. I would suggest to you that when we live into this story, we can experience that same blessing that exceeds expectation. The key to this story throughout is God's presence, his providential care, it's God's presence with Joseph as he's sold off into slavery. He doesn't go alone, God sends him off into slavery in Egypt, and that makes all the difference in Joseph's life, that God is present with him in a foreign land. God's presence then goes with Jacob when he goes down to Egypt, that makes all the difference, and last time uh, we were in this story, Jacob meets with God in Beersheba at the border of Canaan and Egypt, before he goes down. He looks for God's guidance and God says to him, don't be afraid to go to Egypt. I will go with you. Uh, That's Genesis 46, the beginning. God promises his presence at the beginning of Genesis 46 and it leads to God's blessing that we're going to see in Genesis 47. What I think these two chapters teach us is that God's presence with his people leads to blessing in the end. And what I'd like to do this morning is look at three aspects of this blessing. There is a blessing that is better than deserved. There is a blessing that is wider than realized. And there is a blessing that is greater than imagined. Blessing better than deserved, wider than they realize, and greater than they imagine. First, let's look at this blessing that is better than they deserve. We have looked at the reconciliation and reunion of Joseph and his brothers after 20 years in Genesis 45. At the end of Genesis 46, the beginning of our passage, we see the emotional reunion of Joseph and his father. And I just want to point out a few significant details. Notice who is arranging for this reunion. It's Judah, the brother perhaps most responsible for dividing Joseph from his father because uh, he led the charge to sell him off into slavery. And so it's fitting redemptively that this is the brother that is arranging for the reunion between Joseph and his father notice how eager Joseph is to see his father he's the second most powerful man in all of Egypt he's used to people coming to him waiting for people to approach him but not in the case of his father when he hears that his father's in Goshen he mounts his chariot and goes to meet his father this is not the Grand Vizier of Egypt and his subject. This is a lot more personal and, 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 uh, and, and emotional. This is a son racing to meet his own father. When Joseph sees his father after 20 years, he throws his arms around him and they weep for a long time. This is the reunion that they never thought would happen. Jacob thought his son was dead. Joseph thought he would never see his father again and when jacob sees joseph he says now i'm ready to die since i've seen that you are alive it's just like this moment in the gospels when simeon holds the baby jesus in his arms he says uh now i'm i'm ready to die since i have seen your salvation Dismiss your servant i've seen your salvation it's called the nunc dimittis latin for now let me depart i've seen the baby jesus i can depart and a similar jacob sees his son and says, now I can depart, I can die happy. It's his nunc dimittis. The blessing doesn't end with the reunion of Joseph and his father. Joseph also strategically coaches his brothers on what to say to the Pharaoh. He says, when Pharaoh asks you, what is your occupation? He says, tell him your servants are shepherds, and we just want to tend to our livestock. As a way of saying, you know, we are not here as any sort of political, social, or economic threat. We're shepherds. We, we just want to continue being shepherds and live peaceful lives. Joseph knows that they will likely be able to settle in Goshen because shepherds are detestable to the Egyptians, so they can live separate lives in Goshen. And the conversation with Pharaoh goes just as Joseph says. Pharaoh uh, talks to his brothers and then says to Joseph, your father and bro- your brothers have come to you, and the land of Egypt is before you. Settle them in the best part of the land in Ocean. consider this ending with me here's Jacob the deceiver he's a flawed man he's a father who has played favorites and blown up his family here's Judah the self-centered brother who sold his own brother off into slavery and here's all the brothers who are in, who are complicit at the end of their story they're reunited and they are given the best part of the land in which to settle they receive a blessing far better than they deserve. They're living in the best part of the land as foreigners. They have a a better life than all the Egyptians as we'll see. And the question is, does God make this promise to us? Consider for a moment Philippians 4.19, which says, my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. What does that mean, that promise? It doesn't mean that God promises to meet all of our greeds, but he is promising to meet all of our needs, all of our material and spiritual needs. And what I particularly want to point out is consider the scale of this promise. Philippians 4.19 says that God will meet our needs not out of reluctance or stinginess. No, it says he will meet all of our needs according to the riches of his glory, which is an astounding thought. Philippians 4 doesn't say that God will meet our needs out of his glorious riches, but according to his glorious riches. And I would suggest that there is a big difference. If Bill Gates gives you a dollar, he's giving you out of his riches. But if he gives you according to his riches, he's got to give you far more than that. And that's what Philippians 4 is doing. It's opening the windows of heaven onto your life. That's what's happening in Genesis 47. The windows of heaven are opening on Jacob's family. When Jesus feeds the 5,000 in the wilderness, he multiplies the 5 loaves and 2 fish and feeds the multitude. He doesn't just give them a snack to carry them over until they get a real meal. The Gospel accounts say all ate and were satisfied. And 12 basketfuls of bread and fish were left uh, over. The windows of heaven were opening on the 5,000 in the wilderness. Twenty years ago, if you had told the core families that were planting this church, Redeemer Montclair, and and renting space and doing setup and takedown every week, if you told them that in 20 years they would own property a few blocks from the main business district of Montclair and have a brand new new 3 million dollar building, they would have said, never in our wildest dreams. God has opened the windows of heaven on Redeemer Montclair. And perhaps you say well you're sitting here and you say well i haven't experienced that kind of material blessing there is a spiritual blessing that when we become christians we all experience we when you become a christian when you put your faith in jesus christ some significant things happen we are forgiven of our sins we are declared righteous in god's sight We are adopted into God's family as sons and daughters and given all the privileges of sonship and daughtership. Scripture says we become co-heirs with Jesus Christ. What does that mean? It means all that belongs to Jesus Christ becomes ours if we're co-heirs with Jesus Christ. See, spiritually, we have received a significant blessing, better than we deserve. And sometimes, I don't think we see that or appreciate that because of our expectations. Arthur Brooks is a social scientist at Harvard who studies human happiness. And I was listening to a podcast uh, with him recently, and he related this story. He was talking to a a woman on Wall Street in her late 50s, who has been very successful, probably made a billion dollars in her career, I mean, just killing it. She has a firm named after her. She's doing everything right career-wise, but she says that she's not happy. When Brooks asks her why, she says, my husband and I are only roommates. I only have a cordial relationship with my kids. I'm not making crisp decisions in my firm. I don't like my work as much as I used to, but I'm not sure what else to do. I'm probably drinking too much. I'm getting bad. I'm starting to get bad reports from my doctor. What should I do? Uh, because Brooks studies human happiness. And Brooks says, I don't think you need me to tell, tell you. You already know what to do. Take a step back from your firm. Go away with your husband. Get back to church. Go to Alcoholics Anonymous. Why aren't you doing these things? And her response is this, I always chose to be special rather than happy. And Brooks says this is what is driving so much of the striving culture that we live in. We want to be special more than we want to be happy. We want to achieve. We want to be the special one, and that's what drives our workaholism. We can't stop working because we want to be special. And interestingly, Brooks connects this to why so many young people are miserable today because they're lonely, isolated, and have no romance in their lives. Why? Brooks says it's because of attachment avoidance. He says, why why is this? Here's his conjecture. He says that young adults have been told all their lives that they are special. And the feeling of being special becomes a force field against loving and being loved. Person says, I'm so lonely. I just want to meet someone. But When someone comes along, they bump into their specialness and can't break through that force field. I would add this wanting to be special also leads, I think, to pride. I mean, we become addicted to our specialness. We say like, I'm just, I'm so awesome. I mean, that's our mentality this means that when the windows of heaven open on our lives we say of course i'm the special one i deserve this and of course the bible would beg to differ on our own we are sinners and rebels against god and there's nothing special about that and so when the windows of heaven open on us it's blessing far more than we deserve and my friends when you see that it unlocks this deep gratitude and real joy. There is a blessing more than we deserve. Secondly, there is a blessing wider than we realize. When Joseph introduces his father to Pharaoh, there's this really interesting interaction. I mean, Pharaoh asks Jacob how old he is, which like you do with kids, but like not with adults. But Pharaoh asks Jacob how old he is because the Egyptians were preoccupied with death. That's why they were always seeking to embalm bodies and immortalize the body, because they were preoccupied with death. And so when Jacob tells Pharaoh that he's 130, which, by the way, exceeds the, Egyptian, the ideal Egyptian lifespan of 110, the Pharaoh must have been impressed. And then notice this. Jacob blesses the Pharaoh and goes out from his presence, which is interesting. Because usually it's the superior that blesses the inferior. You would have expected Pharaoh to bless Jacob. But instead, the foreign pilgrim blesses the king of Egypt. I mean, think of this interaction. Here's two men at the opposite ends of the spectrum. Here's Pharaoh, the epitome of worldly power and success and wealth and greatness. And here's Jacob, the pilgrim who owns no land and has very few possessions, who lives completely dependent on God. And the surprise is that the pilgrim blesses the king. The one in covenant relationship with God, with the God of the universe without home or possessions is greater than the king of Egypt with all his palaces and all his wealth. I think it's just a little snapshot, a little picture of God's blessing being wider than the people of God realize. Not only does Jacob bless the Pharaoh, but Joseph blesses the Egyptians. You may have heard this in the middle of Genesis 47. Joseph saves the Egyptians through the famine. The problem that we have, you may have had this problem as you were listening to this passage being read, is that to our modern Western ears, it sounds like Joseph is exploiting and enslaving the people. He collects all their money in exchange for food, and when that runs out, then he takes their livestock, and when all their livestock is sold to, to Joseph, there's nothing left, left except their bodies and their land, and then the people offer that. So that Joseph takes all the land, and he uh, enslaves uh, all the Egyptians from one end of the country to the other. And then he gives them seed to plant, and he says, when the crop comes, you need to give 20% to the Pharaoh. And we say to ourselves, "That well, that sounds a lot like social injustice. But before we jump to that conclusion, a few things I think we need to keep in mind. Joseph here is not collecting these things, the money, the livestock, the land for himself. He's not enriching himself. He also is a faithful servant to the Pharaoh. Moreover, this is not enforced slavery. This is willing and voluntary. It's the people who offer to give their their land and themselves. And then perhaps the clincher in verse 25, the people themselves say, you have saved our lives. See, they don't look look at at Joseph and say, you are an oppressive tyrant. They they look at at him and see a savior. And so perhaps we shouldn't judge ancient economic practices by our own. We shouldn't impose our cultural preferences on another culture. I mean, historians tell us that the 20% tax was was generous by ancient Near East standards. Usually the, the standard level was 33%. So this was very generous of Joseph and the Pharaoh. I think what the writer The biblical writer is trying to get us to see is that God blesses even the Pharaoh and the Egyptians through Joseph He doesn't just bless the Joseph and his family he blesses the Pharaoh and the Egyptians through Joseph I think it's a small picture of the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham in Genesis 12 that all people on earth would be blessed through him there is a blessing that is wider than we realize Genesis 47 is just the beginning. Christianity goes on to become the most diverse, multi ethnic, multicultural movement in the history of the world. I mean, is that, a, is that an overstatement? Can you think of another social movement in, the, in history that is as diverse, global, multinational, multicultural, multi ethnic? A few weeks ago I told you about people who study global Christianity and they say a major shift is taking place for a for thousand years a majority of, of Christians lived in the global north that, that is Europe and, and North America but you know there's a shift such that the majority of Christians not live in the global south. In Asia and Latin America and Africa and they say by 2100 over half the global population of Christians will be in Africa who could have seen this coming? Christianity is not just a diverse global religion. It has fundamentally changed the cultures into which it has entered. Tom Holland is an award-winning historian of the ancient world. He lives in London. He wrote a book recently entitled Dominion. It's a substantial book. It's 500 pages long. And he wrote it to trace out how the West has become saturated by Christian assumptions. Here's what he says in the preface. He says, to live in a Western country is to live in a society still utterly saturated by Christian concepts and assumptions. Two thousand years on from the birth of Christ, it does not require a belief that he rose from the dead to be stamped by the formidable, indeed the inescapable, influence of Christianity. Whether it be the conviction that the workings of conscience are the surest determinants of good law, or that church and state exist as distinct entities, or that polygamy is unacceptable, its trace elements are to be found everywhere in the West. Even to write about it in a Western language is to use words shot through with Christian connotations. Religion, secular, atheist. None of these are neutral uh, words. All, though they derive from the classical past, come freighted with a legacy of Christendom. He says this, the West increasingly empty though the pews may be, remains firmly moored to its Christian past. So, for example, if you employ the international dating system, you are beholden to the fact that even time has been Christianized. Our morals and ethics. For example, the belief that it is nobler to suffer than to inflict suffering or equality or human dignity or compassion or freedom. Where do these morals come from? They are not universal morals. They're the fruits of Christianity. There is a blessing wider than we realize. Russell Moore and Tim Keller were once teaching a class at the University of Chicago. And one of the students asked them why they would continue to use the word evangelical when it's become so politicized and toxic. Tim Keller's response? He said, well, it's because most of us Evangelicals are in Africa, Asia, and Latin America. And therefore, the North Americans don't get to choose what what we're called because we've wrecked the brand. And the student said, fair enough. There is a blessing wider than we realize. See, sometimes we narrow Christianity to to think that it's just an American white religion, and that's so not true. There's There's a blessing wider than we realize. And lastly, there is a blessing greater than we imagine. Here's the interesting thing at the end of our passage. In verse 28, uh, we're told that Jacob lives his last 17 years of life in Egypt under Joseph's care. Which is very interesting because that matches the 17 years that Joseph lived at the beginning of his life in Canaan under Jacob's care. These little details are evidences of God's providential care ordering out all the details just as he sees fit when the time draws near for Jacob to die he makes his dying request of Joseph he says don't bury me in Egypt bury me with my fathers in the land of Canaan why it's an expression of his identity and belief that Egypt is not his true home that the Egyptians are not his true people His true home is in the promised land, and his true people are his fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and their offspring. What Jacob is doing is he's looking forward to a greater blessing than he can fully imagine or see in his lifetime. When God brings his people to their true home, the promised land. This identity and belief enables Jacob to hold on to the wealth of Egypt loosely. He experiences the prosperity in Egypt, but he's clearly not living for it. He lives in the best part of the land, but he realizes this is not my home. He's in Egypt, but he's not of Egypt. And so the image in verse 31 is apropos. Jacob leaning on top of his staff, a pilgrim, awaiting the fulfillment of God's greater promises to lead his people to their true home. promised land. This is a blessing greater than he imagined. And there is a a blessing greater than we can imagine in Jesus Christ. Because my friends, in Jesus Christ there is a a blessing better than we deserve. There is a blessing wider than we realize. A great multitude that no one can count from every tribe, nation, language, and tongue standing before the throne of the Lamb. And there is a blessing greater than we can imagine because Jesus is preparing a home for us and he will return to bring us home. Where? Not an immaterial existence where we float on clouds for eternity, but a new heavens and a new earth. These cities, these mountains, These rivers, these valleys, these beautiful places we go on vacation, these places but renewed and made new. When Jesus brings us home, therefore, I think it will be like that moment on Extreme Makeover Home Edition (laughs) where they choose a family in hardship and they ask them to move out for a week. And then the designers and workmen move in and they go to work for a week making that house all new, making it more suited to their needs. And then there's that moment, that fun moment, when they bring their that family back to their home for the first time. And they see their old home, but their old home made new. And there are shouts of joy and tears of gratitude. Again, and it'll be like the moment at the end of C.S. Lewis's Narnia series when they finally reach Aslan's country. C.S. Lewis writes, the difference between the old Narnia and the new Narnia was like that. The new one was a deeper country. Every rock and flower and blade of grass looked as if it meant more. I can't describe it any better than that. If you ever get there, you will know what I mean. It was a unicorn who summed up what everyone was feeling. He stamped his right forehoof on the ground and neighed and then cried, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I've been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. The reason why we love the old Narnia is that it sometimes looked a little like this. Come further up, come further in. My friends, God's presence with his people leads to blessing in the end. This is not a health and wealth gospel. This is not an exemption from suffering. Jacob and Joseph were afflicted and experienced death. They suffered. Jesus' disciples experienced suffering, they were afflicted. But it's saying that in the end, we will experience a blessing more than we deserve, wider than we realize and greater than we can imagine. No eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor mind conceived, what God has prepared for those who love him. There will be a blessing that outstrips all expectations. And this is the way that we can be content, even if we have no land or few possessions. My friends, it's the way that we can endure suffering because we know that there is a glory to come that far awaits it all. It's a way we can live in Egypt but not be of Egypt, enjoy luxuries without luxuries owning us because we realize this is not our home. It's a way that we can live with indestructible hope because Jesus Christ is God with us. And the story he is writing in our lives ends in blessing that is more than we deserve, wider than we realize, and greater than we can imagine. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, this is a story we want to live into. Lord, we are a people who are in need of indestructible hope to pull us through difficult seasons and times in life. Thank you in the story in the story the life of Joseph you give us that indestructible hope. You show us the blessing that is to come for your people. Lord would you help us to take this in in such a way that it fuels our contentment and our hope. For this we pray in Jesus name. Amen.